Anyone in here ever lived through a crisis? All right, everybody in here should have raised their hands, and if you didn't, you're lying. That's right. A crisis. We don't have to live very long before we encounter some kind of crisis in life. And I'm not talking about the crisis of uh, not being able to find a parking place when the movie time is very quickly approaching. That's not a real crisis. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about here is a crisis that is a time of intense difficulty, a time of intense trouble, a time of real danger. Sometimes we endure a crisis like this because, quite frankly, folks, we're stupid and we make bad decisions. And the crisis is a consequence of a bad decision. Sometimes uh, a crisis like this, a time of intense difficulty, a time of trouble, a time of intense danger, sometimes that's thrust upon us from external circumstances. Sometimes it's thrust upon us by the actions of others. A crisis That time of intense difficulty, that time of trouble, that time of danger is also a time that can be a turning point in life as we make a difficult or have to make a difficult and important decision. Sometimes a crisis, this intense difficulty, is more internal than external. A dark night of the soul as experienced by St. John of the Cross, a 16th century divine, in which the crisis is more spiritual than physical, in which the crisis is an attack upon our conscience or an attack upon our faith, an attack upon our worthiness to stand before God. What do we do when we face a crisis? We all know that at some point in this Life, we're going to come into an intense time of difficulty, an intense time of danger or trouble. We're all going to come into a turning point where we have to make decisions. What do we do when we face a crisis? Where do we go? In his book, Absalom, Absalom, William Faulkner declared, A man always falls back upon what he knows best in a crisis. The murderer upon murder, the thief thieving, the liar lying. And that strikes me as profoundly true. When we face intense difficulty, when we come into a period of turning point that is a crisis, we fall back on what we know best. And so when we face a crisis, when you face a crisis, when I face a crisis, what do we do? Where do we turn? As believers in Jesus, we're called to fall back upon God. And I truly believe that Uh, There is an objective truth that the only place to go in the face of a crisis is God, whether you believe in him or not. The only real place of comfort and relief in your distress is God, the creator of all that is. And I believe that primarily because only God is true in his character and in his deed. Now, our psalm appointed for today, which we read responsively, is Psalm 4. The fourth psalm was written by David. It's, it's kind of, uh, I find it humorous and ironic that here uh, the subscription or, uh, to the psalm itself says that it's to the choir master with stringed instruments. So here we have a contemporary praise hymn back in the uh, ninth century before Jesus. That's pretty amazing to me. Nobody else thought that was amazing or funny. But this is a praise song. This is a praise song, a, pra- a song of worship written by David in the midst of a crisis. 
It is a psalm of confidence. It is a psalm of lament. It is a song of praise, and it is a prayer. And in it, David declares and he reveals that in his crisis, he will fall back upon God, actively depending upon God for strength, for resolution, for peace, and for vindication. In the midst of a crisis, a person of God falls back upon God. While we can't know for certain, we can think it makes sense for us to understand David's crisis in Psalm 4 to be the same crisis he faced in Psalm 3. You see, there are some uh, thematic and grammatical parallels between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, which seem to connect them. And Psalm 3 is clearly connected to David's struggle, David's crisis with his son Absalom. After David sinned with Bathsheba, he was told by the prophet Nathan that his family would be afflicted with strife and that evil would come from within it. And in the chapters following this announcement, this prophecy from 2 Samuel 12, one of David's sons, Amnon, raped his half-sister Tamar. And Tamar's brother, David's other son, Absalom, took revenge upon Amnon, killed him, and then fled the country, only to be brought back and restored. Days of our lives in the Scripture. (laughs) 2 Samuel 15 then records what happened after Absalom returned. He turned the people of Israel against David as he stole the hearts of the men of Israel and launched a rebellion against his father. And so Absalom had himself proclaimed king, he had a great deal of strength, a military force, and he forced David to escape Jerusalem. He fled his capital city, he fled his stronghold from before Absalom. And it very well could be, because of those grammatic and thematical overlaps between three Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, that this is another part of David's crisis, another crying out to God. His life is in danger. The family life is broken. His, his reign as king is threatened. He's got a real crisis on his hands. And when he's faced with the crisis, what does David do? When faced with the crisis, what do you do? And what do I do? We humans, we humans always look for relief. We always look for strength. We always look for something to deliver us. David hits upon this in verse 6 of Psalm 4 when he offers up two basic options. There are many who say, who will show us some good? In the midst of a crisis, we humans will cast about looking for anything to show us some good. We will cast about looking for anything that can or will offer some level of relief, even if just for a few seconds, that will offer us some level of peace. But David says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David shows us the right way to go. This psalm begins and ends with David's response. In the midst of his crisis, David falls back upon God, looking to God for relief, strength, vindication, and peace. In verses 1, 6, 7, and 8, David directly addresses God and entrusts himself to God because of who God is and what God has done. Only God is true in character. Only God is true indeed, and so it is. Only God is trustworthy in the midst of a turning point, a crisis of intense difficulty. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. That's the first thing that David says here in this particular psalm. 
And the first thing we recognize here is who it is David turns to, or to whom it is that David turns, the God of his righteousness. You see, God himself is righteous. God himself is righteousness. God is the upholder of justice, and he is neither arbitrary nor capricious. God always does that which is right and good. God always does and always is faithful to his covenant promises. And so David turns to God because he knows that God is true. He knows that God is trustworthy. And even more than that, we also see that God is not just the possessor of righteousness. He is the possessor and author of David's righteousness. He says, the God of my righteousness. So that any righteousness that David might claim is ultimately imputed upon him from the outside in. David, this man in a crisis, is looking for righteousness. He's looking for justice. He's turning to vindication. And where does David turn? He turns to the God who is himself righteousness and who possesses David's righteousness. He turns to the one who is himself justice. He falls back upon God. And David falls back upon God, not out of some abstract theory about God's being. He falls back upon God, not because he read about God in a book. He doesn't fall back upon God because someone told him about God. He falls back upon God because of his experience of truth, his experience of who God is. You see, who God is directly connects to what God does. And what has God done for David? Look at the second stanza of verse 1. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Not only is God the only one trustworthy because of his character, he is the only one trustworthy in the midst of a crisis because of what he has already done. You've done it before, Lord. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. This middle stanza of verse 1 points back to a time of previous deliverance, previous crises endured and resolved. Maybe David is thinking back to when he faced down Goliath. God, you've delivered me before, and Absalom's not nearly as tall. Maybe he's thinking back to that time when he fled from Saul and had to hide in caves. God, you've delivered me before. Absalom's not nearly as crazy. Maybe he's thinking about those wars and those battles that he fought for the people of Israel and all of those times in which God delivered him in his distress. And he says, be gracious and hear my prayer. What has this righteous God done for David? He's given him righteousness. He's delivered him in a previous Christ, from a previous crisis. Verse 3 of this psalm points to the reality that a godly person is set apart by God and that God hears the godly when they call. And in verse 7, David recognizes that he has received joy as a gift from God, joy that is far more abundant, that far outpaces wine and grain. So often as we're in the midst of a crisis and we're casting about looking for things to bring relief, we turn to that which can only temporarily satisfy. We turn to alcohol or food or sex or money. We turn to television. We turn to all of these things. And what we should be turning to is the one whose joy outpaces everything. What David says is all of these things are temporary joys that pale in comparison to the joy found in God. And he says it in the midst of the crisis. This isn't David looking back, having been delivered. This is David in the midst of it all, his own son threatening his life. My joy is 
more abundant in you, God, than all those clowns and knuckleheads who have barns full of food. Who God is and what God has done. David reflects upon these things in the midst of a crisis that he might endure so that, and so that the voices of the critics might be silenced. O oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He's addressing his opponents. David's opponents, whomever they may be, Absalom, leading citizens of Jerusalem, people of authority, it doesn't matter. They are liars, and they're trying to call his honor shame. They love vain words and lies, and they need to know who they're messing with. They're messing with one who has been set apart by God for himself, and one who is heard by God. You see, falling back upon God puts the external circumstance of crisis into proper perspective. Falling back upon God, even when we're lying to ourselves or being falsely condemned by the little green lizard that likes to whisper lies of of, uh, unworthiness into our ears, falling back upon God puts those things into proper perspective. David isn't who his opponents say he is. David is who God says he is. David isn't who Absalom says he is. David is who God says he is. We are not who anyone in this world says we are. We are who God says we are in Jesus Christ. And we are not who that little green lizard whispering lies into our ears about condemnation. We are not who that individual says we are. We are who we are dictated by God in Jesus Christ. You aren't even who you say you are. Fundamentally, you are who God says you are in Jesus Christ. As such, the slander and the lies that these opponents of David are pouring out are inconsequential. As the godly, as David, has fellowship with God by God's choosing. The godly are those who've been set apart by God and for fellowship with God, not as a result of their earning it, not as a result of their righteousness, The setting apart by God is actually the precondition for their righteousness. Those who have then taken a hold of God's grace and who have responded with taking a hold of it themselves, those who have come into fellowship with God through his steadfast love and then made righteous by God, these are the godly of verse 3. Not godly before and then enter into fellowship, but enter into fellowship with God and then made godly. The godly, those who are set apart by God for close relationship with God, are heard by God when they cry out to him. In the midst of a crisis, David turns himself to God, knowing who he is. And knowing who God is and knowing what God has done. And in verses 4 and 5, he makes quite clear what he will do in the midst of his crisis. Be angry and do not sin. Perhaps it's here David is really ticked off. The treachery of his own son. How fickle the people of Israel must have been after so many long years of suffering and, and service and leadership for the people of Israel to turn their backs on David to follow some flash in the pan who had long great hair. really ticked off, a right to be angry even. Be angry and do not sin, he says. He's not going to seek revenge. He's not going to take matters into his own hands. He's going to leave justice to God. 
He's going to trust that God will work this out the way God sees fit in his righteousness. And so in this context, David turns to God and refuses to take revenge. He's going to ponder in his own heart on his own bed and be silent. He gives that as a command to others. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Uh, Be silent in meditation and prayer, especially upon the character and actions of God in the Scriptures and in what he has done for us in the past. In the middle of the crisis, fall back upon God by thinking about God, by meditating upon God, and by praying to God. In verse 5, David says, offer right sacrifices. This is a little bit counterintuitive. This is a little bit uh, against the grain. Sometimes when we're in crisis, rather than reach out to community, what we try to do is retreat from community. But David here, rather than retreat from community in the midst of a crisis, David calls us to step closer into the community of God's people for worship and praise. Right sacrifice. And finally, he says, put your trust in the Lord. David calls calls God's people to trust God actively, actively. In one of his novels, American author Russell Banks has a protagonist named Bob. Bob believed in God the way he believed in politicians. He knows they exist, but he doesn't depend on them for anything. That is not what David is talking about here. David here is talking about actively trusting God, who he knows is righteous, who he knows has acted for deliverance in the past. He's talking about actively trusting God for vindication, for justice, for strength, for renewal, for restoration. Whatever God who is righteous, however God who is righteous defines those things, David is willing to say, have it your way, God. This is what falling back upon God looks like, active dependence and worship, prayer and meditation upon his character and deeds, and thus reminding the self of these things while leaving justice and vindication to him. And what's the result of this active dependence upon God? What is it David gets out of this? Is Absalom struck by lightning? No, the psalm ends with Absalom still in rebellion and David still in crisis. Look how it actually does end, however, because it ends in the midst of crisis with David at peace. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is an interesting verse and a confident conclusion, especially as we consider that David may have written this in the midst of the crisis, before it was resolved. Even in the midst of the crisis, people of God can have peace. They can sleep because of who God is and what God has done. This is the reflection of an internal condition while the external circumstances are being worked out. A reflection of trusting God and depending upon Him even in the face of intense difficulty. The last word of this psalm, safety, may not mean what we think it means. So often when we think of safety, we think of seatbelts, we think of airbags deploying, we think of the side bags, you know, in our cars, we think of safety, we make sure that our kids have helmets when they ride their bikes and knee pads and elbow pads and booty pads and neck braces and I'm not sure how I survived infancy to be quite frank. When we think of safety, we think of an absence of threat. Right? 
an absence of danger. And yet, if this psalm is indeed connected to David's crisis with Absalom, he says he has safety even in the midst of being threatened. The Hebrew word translated as safety shares the same root as the word translated as trust, and it refers not so much to the external circumstance, but to an internal condition. And so perhaps a better way to think about this is than to say, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell unafraid. Not that there is an absence of threat, but in the face of the threat, David remains unafraid and at peace because he knows God has him. And so in the midst of a crisis, David falls back upon God. He falls back upon what he knows best. He actively entrusts himself to God because of who God is, because of what God has done. And there, David finds peace even as the crisis is yet unabated. A person doesn't have to live very long before they encounter some kind of crisis, some kind of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger that is a turning point in a life where a difficult and important decision must be made. Crises can be unexpected and can come for about for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we endure a crisis because we're stupid. We make bad decisions and the crisis is a consequence. Sometimes a crisis is thrust upon us from external circumstances and the actions of others. Sometimes a crisis is thrust upon us by the rebellion of our own bodies. Sometimes a crisis is more internal than external, more spiritual than physical, an attack upon our conscience, an attack upon our faith. If it is true that a man in a crisis falls back upon what he knows best, the murderer upon murder, the thief of thieving, and the liar lying, the question I have for you this morning and the question I must ask myself is this, what do I know best? Where do I go in a crisis? Where do we turn? As believers in Jesus, we're called to fall back upon God. God is the only truly objective, righteous God, the only place that we can possibly be unafraid. And what was true for David in Psalm 4 is true for men and women of God today. And as we read this psalm, as we hear it this morning, realize that everything David proclaimed about God can be proclaimed about Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness, and thus the whispered lies of condemnation and unworthiness, that which arises from within and that which is spoken by the liar, are silenced because of what Jesus has done. Jesus sets apart the godly for fellowship with his Father and with himself and with the Holy Spirit, and thus there is certainty about to whom we belong. And there is certainty about who and what makes our identity. Because of Jesus, our prayers are heard. Overflowing joy, overflowing peace, courage, being unafraid in the face of crisis, all found in Jesus. And so it is because of Jesus, as the author of Hebrews states, we have access to the holiest of places, the very presence of God, and we are never alone, even in our crisis. And more than that, even because of Jesus, his followers have the indwelling Holy Spirit to make him present to us. Like David, we can declare to ourselves who God is and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And like David, we can find our relief and our comfort in knowing that God hears us when we pray to him. And like David, we can have peace and lie down to sleep. We can dwell even in the midst of intense difficulty and even danger, unafraid. And so like David, God's people in Jesus are called to fall back upon him. 
active dependence and worship, prayer and meditating upon his character and deeds, leaving the results to the God of our righteousness who is himself righteous and will work things out the way he knows is best. That's the only place there is peace, throwing ourselves upon God. Do you know him best? What is it that you turn to in the face of crisis? A man in a crisis falls back on what he knows best. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.